Hello, and welcome to the Indexical Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Hying. This week, we bring you another unreleased episode from our archives, featuring percussionist Ben Bennett and horn player Arrington de Dioniso. In this episode, you'll hear the original introduction John Myers and I recorded, an interview with Ben and Arrington, and freshly mastered excerpts from their 2018 concert. If you have thoughts or questions about this episode or the Index School podcast in general, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Index School's handle is an index of music. I'm also available via email at madison at Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Indexical Podcast. This is Madison Hying. And this is John Myers. In this episode, Madison and Andrew Smith talk to Arrington de Dioniso and Ben Bennett. This podcast was recorded in the hallway of the Radius Gallery, where they performed on January 19th, 2018. And we wanted to give you a heads up that there are many interruptions throughout, including a woman trying to find her friend, a confused man looking for the bathroom, and lastly, Arrington's father, whose arrival permanently derailed the conversation. We spoke with Arrington about his extensive touring practices, playing with local musicians in each town he visits, how he met Ben, clicks among experimental music subgenres, and a recent family-friendly concert he produced in Oakland. Ben spoke about his improvisatory percussion practice, as well as his very popular YouTube series called Sitting and Smiling, and how these two practices are related. 
We'll also be listening to excerpts from their performances that evening. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy. that you're both here just to get a start a little to backtrack with you if uh, you could just take like a minute and just introduce yourself and kind of like what you do okay uh, my name is Ben Bennett I'm an improvising drummer and percussionist and I also do some performance art that is sometimes in front of a live audience and sometimes on YouTube I'm Arrington Didini so I'm been based in Olympia, Washington since 1992. I'm a visual artist, uh, musician, uh, linguist, and I do other things sometimes. Um, musically, uh, saxophone, bass clarinet, woodwind, instruments, voice, and other things too sometimes. Can you talk a bit about your current projects and current touring? Yeah, um, I met Ben last year because I was doing a tour called This Saxophone Kills Fascist, where I played every night in a different city for two months. I did about 63 shows because there were a couple towns where I actually played two or three times in one day in a couple places. and. Um, I did a few gigs solo, but in every, every opportunity that I had to find someone else to play with, I, I went on recommendations from uh, kind of my social networks and, and uh, people I know, and, and Ben uh, came highly recommended to me as a person to contact on the east coast of the United States. And so we were able to do uh, two concerts in Baltimore one in Washington, D.C., and one in Philadelphia. And um, I think out of, out of all the people that I, at least all the, all the drummers that I played with on that tour, um, I felt like there was something like really cool happening between us that I wanted to kind of have an opportunity to, to do more with. And uh, Ben's only been out to the West Coast for playing music uh, just a couple of times, or once maybe, once or twice? Um, two times, but I didn't play that many shows either of those times. Yeah, so I, you know, I thought it would benefit both of us if we try to do a more extensive West Coast tour. Did you and feel that, like, synergy or whatever? Did yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> you, you can say no, it won't hurt my feelings. Yeah. I mean, obviously he's here, so I'm, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah no, it's, 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 it's been really great. Um, you know, I... Some of the, hi I mean, among many highlights, I mean, we had we had a really wonderful time up in Bellingham and Vancouver, BC. Uh, last night in Bolinas was really extraordinary, I thought, in, in, in many ways. Uh, the night before Bolinas, we were in Oakland and we played a show that had been expressly um, dedicated to the idea that parents and children were welcome to attend uh, because I feel like a lot of experimental music is presented in you know, kind of more inaccessible, well, I mean, ways that are inaccessible for people with small children. And 
and I thought it was a great success. It, it was it was really wild, but you know we were doing our thing, and the kids were, I think for the most part, like perfectly enraptured during our set. And then you know when we were done, they were running around and making noise, but like that's what we were expecting would happen. So that was cool. Can you talk a bit more about the situation that led you to that gig in Oakland? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, I, my, my, my daughter is um, a grown-up now, but um, I have many memories of what it's like being a parent and being active on the music scene as a performer and an attendant. Um, and, I, and I just, the, what precipitated this particular event in Oakland was that my sister lives in Oakland and has a five-year-old, my nephew, and the woman who was going to let us use her studio space to present this concert was my sister's friend, who also has a five-year-old. And they're in this playgroup of about, you know, between five and ten five-year-olds that meet up in the park every morning. And uh, when, I, when I was talking to her about using her space, she was like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going I'm to talk to my partner about finding childcare. I think I got something figured out. And I was like, wait a minute, we're using your space and you're my sister's friend, and like you've all got kids who are the same age, why don't we just try to change the narrative a little bit on this event and, and, and do something that people, that I, I, do something that I don't see people doing very much. I, I'm not saying it's the first time anyone's done that, but uh, I don't see that happening in a specifically experimental music context, or, or a free jazz, or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it, it's music that a lot of people, ad, adults and children, kind of find to be a little bit, you know, it's kind of angular and kind of a little bit hard to get into if you're not already like a fan or something. And, you know, how are we gonna uh, capture the attention of the next generation of, of uh, free jazz kids if we don't, uh, if we don't rope them in somehow? This, they're, they're not gonna learn about it in school, you know? They're not gonna learn about it on public television. They're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna look it up on the internet because they wouldn't know what they're looking for. Um, I have really distinct memories of, um, you know, when I went to a, a, a like a arts-focused public school in Chicago when I was a kid, uh, in my, it was either kindergarten or first grade, they brought this whole African dance, like drumming and masks and dancers, this whole big ensemble. And, you know, like, I, I feel like I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, that, that left a, an enormous impression on me when I was, you know, five or six years old. And, and I, you know, I want to, I, I think it's kind of time that we think about the ways that our music is transmitted because a lot of the more traditional avenues aren't accessible the way that they used to be. So. I'm I'm wondering in particular about um, uh, your kind of practice of touring just mm -hmm. constantly. Yeah. Uh, and um, I mean, well, one of the things that I strongly associate with you in my mind is this practice of touring to unconventional venues mm -hmm. and to relatively small towns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you talked about your gig in Bellinas. Yeah. Bellingham, which is actually what uh, Paul Metzger and John St. Pelvin mentioned as well, the Bellingham space yeah, yeah. and the community just being amazing. Yeah. 
Um, and so, I mean, I'm wondering how you feel, like, like how you feel those, like how, I guess how you came to the decision to make that a priority. Mm-hmm. And um, because of your practice of, of playing with people who are local to the place that you are, yeah. um, how, how you've seen that interaction play out, particularly in you know, more out yeah. places? Well, you know, like, so in the realms of weirdo music, there are a lot of cross currents and there's a lot of cross-pollination. There's sort of different like streams and different ideologies kind of around that. Um, when I started getting really deep into the experimental music world, you know, I wasn't part of a community for that. I was discovering records in a library and then a little later on I was working at a radio station that had a really extensive collection and so through working at the radio station, I was able to contact other people like, oh, like there's somebody else out there who's into this, you know? So I was able to learn a little bit about how that works. And as I got a little bit older, I started organizing, you know, my own gigs, but then also um, gigs for people coming through town. Um, at that point, I was already living in Olympia, which is a small town, but it's a college town and there's a really kind of vibrant uh, and, and a very, you know, kind of historically important music scene. Um, slightly more so for, like, independent rock music, but, but I would say independent rock music with, with a, a, a large spirit of, of uh, embracing improvisation and embracing experimentation within those genres. And so I wanted to kind of present things that would, you know, maybe challenge people on their assumptions about what constitutes a genre and you know maybe to go a little bit outside of that but maybe still have one foot in you know some some foot in familiarity and then another foot in like hey like this could be like totally left field and 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 weird and maybe something you never would have uh, thought of before but then when I started going to bigger cities like Seattle the Bay Area um, I didn't really ever get, get to New York until I was a bit older, but, um, you know, when I, when I met people who were in the, like, the scene and, like, playing in specific cities, uh, I was really kind of surprised to find these sort of weird divisions that people would have of, like, uh, you know, be, like people that, like I would consider all of these people, you know, experimental musicians, but then there would be these sort of different camps that would emerge. Like, you know, this sax player will play with this drummer all the time, but then, you know, this other bass player, it's like, oh yeah, no, yeah, I don't go to his shows anymore. Cause you know, we, I don't know, we had, you know, some random thing that happened 15 years ago, like those guys don't talk to each other or, or, you know, there's, you know, these people play too loud, or these people play too quiet, or, you know, all those kinds of things that, that happen in scenes that are more, I guess, like concentrated around a geographic area. And uh, I don't know, I mean. Uh, Hi. Hi. Hey. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing an interview? Oh, I'm sorry. You're interrupting. That's okay. <laughs> sorry about that. Okay. So the concert does not start today.
So I'll ask my question. Okay. What's it like to be a YouTube sensation? <laughs> um, I at this point I am not. I don't feel uh, that affected by the YouTube sensation. Like I feel pretty used to it. Like there was right when it blew up. Uh, it seemed like it was like really new and uh, strange and like uh, in present in my mind a lot. And uh, now I'm now it's kind of both of the sensation part of it has simmered down a little bit and um, it's not as new to me. And it's like, I sense I'm continuing to do the same thing for the most part. <laughs> All of the yellow diamonds. Oh, so you're talking about it simmering down. Oh yeah. Bit. Yeah. Now it's like, uh, like it used to be like there'd be this, these viral searches in uh, how many, in the viewership of the YouTube series and now it's there's not as many viral searches or they're not as big but then the kind of base viewership is still steadily growing and and so it's like consistently higher than it was before for our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with what you do could you describe some of your web series or your YouTube uh series? yeah i have a youtube series called sitting and smiling that i started in 2014 and in that series, I just sit on the floor uh, in sort of a lotus position and smile directly at the camera for four hours every time. And it's live streamed and then it's archived as a video. And I think I'm on number 281 of those. So why four hours? Uh, four hours, partly because it's too long to sit. Like it. Uh, Especially when I started off, it was like a really big challenge to sit that long and was really painful every time. Now it's still like uncomfortable, but usually not excruciatingly painful. Uh, so like something that I could actually do, but was still a huge challenge and is impractically long for anything. Has the... Um uh, has, it, has the audience changed the way you think about the series? Um, I don't think so. Y you mean like the audience response? Yeah, has, I guess... Or knowing that there's a big audience? Right. Um, maybe it has. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's affected how how I do things um, how I do it at all. Like I think I had the idea and felt that it was uh, had some kind of power to it way before it uh, became viral, and I felt like I could keep doing it for for a long time and for it to still be something uh, that I would. That I would still feel like doing, whether there was an audience or not, and even like even if there were, even if nobody were watching, I think it would be still really compelling for me to do. Uh, just even just the thought of somebody coming and finding this, uh, like you know, even if I'd gotten to 281 now without any audience, if somebody stumbled upon that and there was no audience, it would be that much more. 
uh, impactful to, to that person, I think. I'm kind of curious if you see like a relationship between sort of what you're doing in these like long duration videos and your improvisatory practice. There's, there's some kind of relation in that uh, this durational stuff grew out of the, the, uh, my music practice and it is kind of a weird extension or, or a, a limb that's grown out of it as if like as if sitting and smiling or, or walking and talking the other series is, is like a uh, it in my mind could be kind of a, a radical interpretation of music of where music could be but I also recognize that they're totally readable outside of the realm of music and outside of the realm of art even and maybe even maybe even it's better that they are. Mm -hmm. Cool. Do you feel like it, do you, do you think of your musical practice um, in, in similar ways? And I'm thinking specifically about uh, your relationship to your, your relationship to the audience and your decision to do something um, and put yourself in an uncomfortable public position. Are, are those related? Yeah, they're they're related, and uh, like in music, it it plays out in the in a situation in a venue that um, you know never has nearly as many viewers as now that that I can have now on YouTube. Uh, but it's it's um, I have people are there and I'm present with them and uh, you know experience the audience's presence directly as opposed to the YouTube thing and um, basically in in either medium like if I'm in a live in a room live with people or I'm through the internet I'm trying to take advantage of the specific opportunities that each of those situations offers um, so when I was I think when I was developing my musical practice I was just becoming aware of all these possibilities to convey uh, convey experience that most that really often I thought people weren't taking advantage of in performances uh, for instance like in a room especially if it's a quiet enough room and people can hear me making acoustic sounds I really want to take advantage of that uh, by not amplifying because if I really think about what sounds are reaching people's ears, it's as if by not amplifying I can get the greatest fidelity of sounds and the greatest detail uh, because you know maybe I, I've been to a lot of shows where everything's going through a PA speaker and it uh, it kind of the the, the sort of qualities of that PA speaker uh, maybe limit what people, limit the range of, of sound that reaches people's ears and, and also uh, comes as, also mediates the, the sound. It's another layer of mediation between the performer and the audience. Mm. Whereas like with, when I'm just playing a drum acoustically, I can, you know, essentially 
treat the membrane of my drum as a speaker that's transmitting sound to people and uh, just you know do it directly and so with doing something on the internet uh, I realized you know doing doing playing my music watching a YouTube video of my music I don't think is nearly as good as it is live and so I wanted to use YouTube in a way that um, to do do a performance that is directly for YouTube and directly for the YouTube viewer, and it's not a documentation of a performance that was for somebody else that the the YouTube viewer is now you know watching and being this like third observer. It's like directly to them, and it's just like trying to use the camera and use the screen as effectively as possible. And and to it was also about kind of it was kind of informed by you know like endurance based performance art but taking it to where people are at which is on YouTube